Flying without an engine. For many of us pilots, that's an emergency. But for around 111,000 active glider pilots in the world, it's the ultimate kind of flight. Understanding how to find thermals and get lift to keep flying is a special art. But like those who fly powered aircraft, not understanding how quickly weather can change can be disastrous. And it almost was for one glider pilot. We'll hear his story on this episode of iLaft. I learned about flying from that. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 24 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. I'm Rob Ryder, your host, and on today's show, Canadian glider pilot Paul Chafe recounts his story of how a very fast-moving storm put him in a situation that he thought was going to take his life. He'll take a step-by-step -step through his flight to an off-field, in-a-field landing right after this word from the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. As a pilot, isn't it great to hear ATC say direct? Well, Avemco is America's only direct aircraft insurance company. And it's the only one that connects you directly with an underwriter empowered to make decisions, solve problems, and approve coverage based on your individual situation, not what some rule book says. Call Avemco at 800-338-8705, 800-338-8705, and learn about coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now, I learned about flying from that. Paul Chafe, welcome to the I Laughed podcast, and I hope you are uh, excited about sharing your story in your own words. Thank you ever so much, Rob. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. You have told me that you have enjoyed some flight simulator stuff in the past, and obviously your story about your glider incident up there in Ontario says you're a glider pilot, but you haven't, have you had any any training or flight experience doing powered flight? Uh, I have. I've done uh, two flights in my, in my life in uh, light aircraft where I got to actually do the flying. Um, and they're a lot of fun, but I, uh, I enjoy gliders more, so that's what I fly. And how many hours over the years and how many years have you been flying? I've been flying uh, since 1986, I think, uh, on and off. And I've got um, something around 300 hours. Very cool. I've got a fundamental question that I ask on behalf of all of us who have powered aircraft and don't have to uh, worry about reading the air. When I was a kid, I, I learned to sail on a lake in Maine, and I learned to see the, see what was happening with the wind as it came across the water toward me and knew how to compensate for that. But how is it that you were able to compensate and learn to read the air? Well, it's uh, it depends on the sort of flying you're doing. Uh, where we fly here in southern Ontario, it's entirely thermal lift, so the sun heats the ground. The ground heats the air over that and, and you get a bubble of hot air which eventually breaks off and rises and that's a thermal. 
Um, once that column of rising air gets high enough, the moisture in it is going to condense out and you'll get one of those fluffy sun clouds you see on a nice summer day. And so that's the, that's the first clue is just to look for those clouds. Uh, there's a bunch of structural clues in the clouds themselves. And then you can also look to the ground, um, you know, big flat parking lots are, are good or quarries are good for absorbing a lot of heat. So creating those uh, thermal columns, you can look to the birds, uh, soaring, soaring with hawks or eagles is, uh, all they, they know how to do it better than we do. So if you just go find <laughs> them, they'll, uh, they'll give you, uh, uh, some pretty good indications. And it's also an awesome experience. Do you ever get a bird that hangs with you and, and watches you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the, the absolute best experiences is, is going up with, uh, going up with soaring birds. Um, you know, cause the, they again, know how to do it. They do it instinctively. And so if you're uh, able to find out where they're going and they're going to take you up. Are they curious about your aircraft? They, not really. Uh, they seem to, at least in my experience, and I've heard of people getting actually attacked, like their aircraft attacked by an eagle. Uh, but uh, I've, I've never had that. I've, uh, I've only had really nice experiences where, you know, you, they just share the air just like any other pilot would. They actually have pretty good airmanship. It's, it, it's, it just points out the differences, Paul, between those of us who are powered guys versus glider guys and ladies. Uh, because, number one, if we don't hear the engine, we're punching in 7700 on the transponder and, call, and declaring an emergency. And number two, for us, as we're cruising along, whether it be 65 knots in a Cub or 155 or 160 or 170 knots in something faster, the birds can be more a hazard than a help. And in this case, quiet is good for you and birds are good indicators for you. Yeah, they, they absolutely are. Um, you know, and I, actually it's, it's the power planes that, that scare me the most. But you are right in the middle of a lot of airports. Your airport, Rockton, is, is well, Toronto is 60 kilometers, about 31 miles northeast. Hamilton, Ontario is 26 kilometers southeast. That's 14 nautical miles. Brantford is 25 kilometers southwest, 13 and a half nautical miles. Kitchener, 22 kilometers northwest, 12 nautical miles. Lake Erie is just 55 kilometers to the south. That's 30 nautical miles. And yet there are about a half dozen glider areas mixed in right around there. Plus, you're almost right underneath the 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 3,500 uh, foot shelf of uh, Toronto's Class B. Isn't that a little too crowded to go flying around in a glider? Well, all our all our aircraft have transponders, and so that's a that's an important thing. We're not actually required to legally up here, uh, but we do because it's smart, especially in this uh, this airspace. Uh, we also fly with a thing called a flarm, a flight alarm, which is a a uh, close proximity warning system that receives ADSB and it does a local collision avoidance for other gliders, uh, which is a, a really useful tool. Uh, and of course, we're really airspace aware. So, you know, we transit north, uh, we stay under 5,000 feet uh, as we go past Waterloo. Uh, we stay, uh, you know, well away from the Toronto layer cake. Um, you know, we 
we make sure that we're not going to get in the way of uh, any of the commercial operations. Um, and as long as that's in, mi in mind, um, you know, we, we operate quite safely. Uh, of course, you know, the, the primary defense is always a good lookout. And <laughs> we're fortunate because the cockpit <laughs> yes. view from a glider is you have the, the, the complete uh, clear canopy. And uh, one of the things I found flying in, in light aircraft is actually it, it's, it feels very claustrophobic. I, I totally understand that as an RV owner with a tip-up canopy on my RV7A, uh, having that that very, very wide uh, field of vision, really, the, the SA is way up there. All right. Well, Paul, you've got all these airports. You've got other gliders. You're avoiding those. But then the other thing that you have to avoid is weather. You both take advantage of it, and you have to avoid it if it gets uh, if it gets in the way. Tell us a little bit now. Set us up for your Tuesday flight that brought you so close to a thunderstorm and forced you off airport landings. Well, so it was a beautiful day. Um, you know, we we do fly uh, using thermals, and and thermals are convection so when you get enough convection those those lovely little light cumulus turn into cumulonimbus which are a little less lovely <laughs> and a lot bigger uh so and and that we have in common with powered aircraft because we we avoid them like the plague yeah right? no, you, you want to there's a there's a story uh out of great britain where a glider was hit by a lightning bolt some 20 nautical miles away from the actual uh the actual storm uh, wow which, uh, you know, I, well, it, the story ended well, uh, both pilots parachuted and, uh, you know, um, that's the best you can, you can ask for in that case. But, and I'm assuming in your flight, you were towed, uh, had a tow plane to launch. Yeah, we, we launched, um, we typically launched to 2000 feet. Um, and that's enough for you to catch your first thermal. So anyway, uh, yeah, on this day, uh, it was a beautiful day and lots of convection, which is a good sign. Um, I launched, uh, released and caught a nice thermal immediately. Um, and then I got a little bit of rain and I looked up and the, the cloud I was under really wasn't, you know, it was transparent. There wasn't enough cloud to be raining on me. And I was like, well, that's weird. Uh, but, but it's a sign that I need to go somewhere else. And, uh, up, up to the North of me towards Waterloo, there was uh, a lot of bigger clouds. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go, you know, kind of, uh, south and west and away from that and uh so off i went and there was as that day developed there was a lot of uh you know heavy cumulus development and and again you just want to stay well aware away from that tell me a little bit about your glider what was its wingspan and what kind of air speeds did you typically fly in it so the wingspan's 15 meters, and that's a standard width for uh, for gliders. Um, there's actually a competition class based on on that wingspan, and we would typically thermal at uh, around 40 knots, uh, 40 to 45, uh, maybe a little less depending on the on the specific aircraft, and then interthermal. Uh, depending on how much lift you're getting, you can in that plane you can be going anything up to uh, probably 70 knots. Um, VNE is, uh, I think, about 150 on that plane. And that was something that, uh, fortunately, at this point, was not 
uh, an issue for you. So you got up there and you decided to take a look. You got the rain. You decided to take a look at some of the other clouds. What happened next? Well, so there were a bunch of uh, storm cells moving through. And, and you know, again, I, I was just staying well away from them. Uh, there was some track through Brantford, which is not far from us. So I, I went in after that had gone through. And the problem is that once a storm's gone through, it really shuts down all the convection because now the ground's wet, there's cloud cover. Uh, so it was not really good soaring. And I was trying to make my way down to Niagara Falls. Uh, I, caught, I caught a little bit of thermals. I got a little bit down there. And then I kind of got low and uh, that's not a good thing in a glider. <laughs> so you have to start thinking about <laughs> landing. And I was just uh, at that point just trying to trying to find enough lift to stay up, and I, I had uh, I had enough to just barely maintain altitude around twelve hundred feet, um, and was hoping that things would improve. But they, in fact, didn't improve. So while you were looking at the ground trying to find a place to land off airport, there were some other buildups that were getting a little more severe. Well, there was a there was a storm that I was I was quite aware of, uh, you know, twenty or thirty nautical miles uh, away down by the Lake Erie shore, and that one was kind of stuck there. There's a there's a phenomenon we also use for soaring called convergence, where you get the the breeze off the the lake will meet the uh, the main flow of the the air mass, and when they meet, they can only go up. So you get lift there and it also tends to trap whatever's happening along that line. Uh, so I was watching that and I was aware of it and I wasn't really concerned about it. And then all of a sudden I got this, you know, from, from maybe one, one knot up or a half knot up on the variometer, I, I was suddenly getting, you know, four, six, uh, some really nice numbers. And I was like, wow, that storm 30 miles away has had a downburst. And that downburst has rolled across the countryside, and it's uh, it's when that happens, they will kick up thermals. And now I've got this nice thermal. I'm going to go home with this awesome story. And I, I did what? At this point, at this point, how far from from Rockport were you? I think about thirty kilometers. So I'd, I'd have to check them out. Okay, got it. So, yeah, the. Uh, this was this was good news, and it was kind of funny lift. It had a little bit of a. Uh, turbulence to it, a different kind of turbulence uh, than, than you'd normally expect in a thermal. But I was just happy to be going up and I got one, one full circle in that lift and then I saw that the source, of, uh, the source of that was not this storm way off on the shoreline, it was this storm which had literally, the downburst had appeared maybe, uh, maybe three kilometers away and Whoa. I saw this pillar of rain come down uh, and I was like, okay, you know what? I've got to land right now. And, and it, um, it was expanding as I watched, expanding fast enough for me to actually see it, the, the wall of rain getting closer. And that oh, was, a, that, <laughs> that was a, you know, a very religious moment. Did you fear for your life in that religious moment, in all seriousness? Uh, no, not that one. Um, the, it, was, it was obviously, I, I had to land immediately. Um, 
because you know it was uh, it was much closer than than I thought, and I was at that point there was a continuous overcast, so I wasn't really able to assess the higher levels or how big you know whatever system might be above me. So the first thing I did was okay, I have to land, and and the field that I had picked was actually towards this thing, so. I was like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to take that field because I want to go in a different direction. I did one turn that showed me there was there was no other field available. That this was the field that I had to land in. Then I had to decide. I had originally planned a left hand circuit into that field, but a left hand circuit actually was on the storm side uh, and would have taken a little bit longer to fly that circuit. So I considered a right hand circuit, but there were a bunch of uh, power pylons there and I just thought no you know what stick with your plan just fly it really fast and I have done a little bit of aerobatic training uh, one of the things we do is um, the high energy approach so rather than flying a you know your normal sort of 50 55 knot approach you'll fly it uh, 70 or 80 knots um, and use the spoilers to, to bleed the energy at the end and I was like, well, <laughs> I need speed, both for time and for controllability. This is going to be a high-energy approach. And I just stuck the nose down and started the circuit. And you were headed into what kind of a field? Uh, well, as it turns out, it was uh, I thought it was cabbages uh, from, from 1,200 feet, but it turns out it was tobacco. And you never want to land in tobacco uh, because <laughs> it's an expensive crop and the farmers really don't like that. You were in a position where you were forced to land, and were the dollar signs ticking in your head as you as you approached, or were you totally focused on getting the aircraft down? Oh no, I was. Uh, it was it was all about getting down at that point, and at that point, I still believed it was cabbages, so it, it would not be hard to land between cabbages. Um, it was only when I uh, when I got closer that I realized it was tobacco, but. You know, at, at that point, at it that was point, still about landing. It was really about landing. You're committed. Yeah, I would have. I would have if, if there was. Um, pick your pick your cash crop. <laughs> I was going to land in it. <laughs> but you were in a position also that you were really up on one wing at one point to to uh, to complete your circuit, your pattern to get to to get on final. Uh, yeah. So I, I came down, and uh, as I said, I, I flew it as a high speed approach. Um, it was actually my first high-speed approach without uh, without an instructor. So I was flying uh, just at the yellow line, uh, a little over 80 knots. And uh, as I was coming in on the downwind leg, that's when the rain hit. So, of course, in a glider, you know, your your airspeed is also your your approach angle. And it's already pretty steep at that speed. And then when the rain hit... <laughs> It really, uh, it really started going down fast. I actually measured it um, because our flight computer records the, the flight path. So, so my glide ratio was, I think it was um, five to one. And wow, that's a, we, yeah, that's about because normally if you're cruising along, you have a, a, a better than thirty or almost forty to one glide ratio in normal flight. That's right. Yeah, in, in that aircraft, it's uh, thirty-five to one. Gosh! So, and you were at five to one. You were almost a brick. Well, that's a that's a power off helicopter. <laughs> that's what that is. Oh. 
Uh, but you can't auto-rotate in a glider. Well, no. Um, so, yeah, the, the rain the rain hit. It really, we, I really started to go down. And um, so another thing that we train on routinely is called an abbreviated circuit because you're not if you if you don't judge your approach properly, you may not be able to go down and do a complete circuit. You may have to use um, you know a smaller part of the runway and just just by turning in early. So I, I immediately realized, yeah, I got to turn <laughs> I got to turn this in early, um, which of course you know uh, brings up the question of how much run, runway I actually need to get down um, or get stopped and. and uh, I turned in early and I was still going down. So where we'd normally be turning base at uh, somewhere three to 500 feet, uh, I was turning base probably closer to 100 feet. And oh my goodness, um, that became one of those, uh, uh, which no flight instructor will support, one of those U-turn um, base legs that just immediately turns into final. And I gotcha. as I was coming into final, of course, uh, the next thing that happened is that what had been uh, a crosswind from this storm cell now becomes a tailwind. And I'm trying to turn as steeply as I can uh, to avoid running out of the width of the circuit and into the trees on the parallel to the runway. And at the same time, I'm looking at how close the wing is getting to the dirt, which was uh, probably down to a wingspan uh, by the time I finished the turn to final. Um, and that was, uh, that, that's, that's when I thought, you know, I could die in those trees right now. That was, that was the, oh, I guess boy. the real religious moment. And you were able then to put it down and <laughs> almost a miracle you did it. You got the center wheel down in between rows of tobacco. Uh, well, that, that was um, I. I can. I have to ascribe that entirely to luck. I mean, I just uh, as soon as I got lined up and got the wings level, I got the spoilers open, um, and I was going. I you know the saving grace of this whole thing was that it did have a great deal of. Uh, of energy in the in the high speed approach, right? So, I had the controllability to expend the energy to to keep the wing up. I had the controllability to to be able to actually select, uh, you know, a line that that would put the fuselage or put the main wheel down a furrow because you know you don't want to. You don't want to land across furrows, and you don't want to land on top of one if you can if you can avoid it. And I understand that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and then, well, especially our, you know, our, our male wheel is only, uh, you know, eight inches in diameter or so. So, um, you don't have a lot of, you don't have the, the, the suspension you might have in uh, another aircraft. Well, you touched down and you came to an abrupt stop. Yeah, I did. Uh, I got it, I got it lined up and that's, that's when I was like, oh, it's tobacco. And, and I'm just thinking about that, uh, um, 15 meter wingspan mowing down all these plants at that point. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is gonna. At this point, I'm not worried about dying anymore. I'm just worried about how you know how much I'm gonna have to pay the farmer. <laughs> and uh, um, and fortunately, the the plants were just under the just under the height of the wing. Um, oh boy. So. 
I got down, uh, as soon as I, I touched, of course, it's sandy soil, which is, is now also wet. So um, the landing was just like a carrier trap. I think the total rollout was about 100 feet. Uh, and then, and, and there I was, and you know, the rain is coming down and the thunder's going and the lightning's going. And I'm just like, you know what? I am, I'm alive today. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing indeed. Let's take a break sure thing. and then come back and discuss what you learned about flying from that. We'll be right back. Sure. Thank you. For 60 years, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker, empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Call 800-338-8705 for a free quote and you'll save an instant 5% for being an iLaft listener. Save even more for recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in a fast Teams Wings course. Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Now, back to iLaft. We're back with Paul Chafe, who just made a precision landing in a tobacco field and didn't cause any damage to the farmer's crop. You must have felt a huge sense of relief, Paul. Uh, I, I did, although you're, you're very generous to call it a precision landing. Uh, you know, that there's... Uh, <laughs> There's, there's that which you just have to, you have to ascribe to being very fortunate, um, and I was very well. As, as we all have said, I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> exactly right. So, yeah, it was. Uh, so you rode out the storm. What happened then? And then tell us what you learned about the about flying from that flight. Uh, so, so what happened next? Uh, you know, I, I, we always, when we set out cross country, we always have a retrieve crew laid on. So I, I called the, the retrieve crew and I called my wife to let her know I was down safe. And, um, then we, we collected the glider and, and took the wings off and brought it home. Uh, in terms of what I learned, uh, I guess the, the real core thing is that, uh, first of all, you know, you have to respect the weather. Uh, you know, this system was not in my mental picture of what was happening with the day. And with the benefit of hindsight, maybe once it gets overcast on that kind of day, it's just time to go home already. The other thing I learned was the benefit of aerobatics training. I mean, I, I had at that point, uh, you know, only just started the program and had done a couple of these high energy approaches uh, with an instructor. But just having that in my toolbox, I think saved my life. Um, I think that had I tried a normal approach, I would have, uh, you know, run out of controllability in the downdraft. I would not have gotten where I needed to get fast enough. And that could have had a pretty bad outcome. Indeed, that is something that uh, when we're talking about wind shear and powered aircraft, you start uh, adding percentages uh, to your airspeed to compensate for the amount of gust uh, range that's uh, being reported in an airport. So those are two great lessons. And and Paul, if if there was anything that you would recommend to uh, any pilot, what would you say to a pilot with respect to becoming a, 
uh, a student of or at least participating in the sport of soaring? Uh, it is to me. It is the the purest form of flight. Um, you know, I I have glasses. I, I could not be a fighter pilot when I was uh, when I was young. Um, but it is just you in the sky, and and how far and how fast you go is is entirely down to your ability to read the sky and and know your aircraft. And it is it is like poetry. I, I, there's nothing like it in my life. I'm glad you wrote the article. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad you read the sky, and I wish you all the best in your continued flying. Paul Chafe, thanks for being on I Laughed. Thank you very much. Soaring is a wonderful way to fly. I've been privileged to work with some amazing glider pilots in the air show business. Bob Carlton, Manfred Radius, and World Glider Aerobatic Champion Luca Bertosio. Their talent and skill are so impressive to watch. If you haven't done so, I hope you'll subscribe and share I Learned About Flying from that. You can follow I Laughed on Flying Magazine, on Facebook, or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes every couple of weeks so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. Julie Boatman is the editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine, and Lisa DeFries is our executive producer. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.